Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we visit Art Basel, Miami Beach. So it's also like a way of, you know, like trying again to establish a dialogue between uh, these artisans and whatever, you know, like masculinity means for them, how it's represented and how it is perceived. Plus, the Global Countdown World Cup. What kind of a journalistic approach are you taking to the World Cup countdown, considering that the next act is from Brazil? Are we going to be unbiased? All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in China. Unrest has been brewing in the country, where the threat of a heavy-handed police state is usually enough to dissuade dissent. Andrew Muller explains why there are protests and why now. To the excellent question of what has been going on in China this week, there is a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is something very definitely is happening, but nobody is entirely certain what. The longer and hopefully more instructive answer is the rest of this explainer. We'll start with what we do know, that this week protests against China's COVID-19 measures have been plausibly reported in cities across the country. There is verifiable footage of demonstrations by Chinese people demanding some semblance of their pre-pandemic lives back. I really think that the government's policy against the COVID is like, too strict. In the, it's violating our rights as a common human. And some folks, rather more boldly, demanding that President Xi Jinping, recently all but confirmed as China's leader for life, step aside. These protesters have abundant reason for grievance. China is coming up for three years of near-total international isolation and grimly pervasive domestic restrictions, all imposed in the name of China's brutally rigid zero-COVID policy. Arguably a worthy aspiration at the beginning of the pandemic, but now an impotent flail at the ceaseless tide with a threadbare broom. So that's the what and the why, which brings us to the why now. There appear to have been two significant triggers for this discontent. One is a fire which broke out in a tower block in Urumqi, capital of Xinjiang province, late last week. Ten people were killed and a narrative quickly took hold that the death toll had been exacerbated by COVID lockdowns. The suggestion being that no leeway had been permitted even for people whose building was ablaze. Videos show fire trucks unable to get close to the scene because the compound entrance was partially blocked. The video shows it's blocked with fences, tents and metal barriers that are normally used as part of COVID measures. The video shows smoke and flames coming from a high floor of the building, but the water failing to actually reach the fire. Local authorities denied this charge, but did issue an apology, which is uncommon, especially in Xinjiang, the province in which China is routinely accused of conducting repressions up to and including genocide against the region's largely Muslim Uyghur minority. The other trigger might be, a butterfly flaps its wings, etc., the World Cup. Oh, he might go alone. Denied by Diego Costa. 
China did not qualify for Qatar. China has, in fact, only qualified for one World Cup in 2002, where they lost all three group games, didn't score a goal, and conceded nine. And it could have been much worse had Brazil not rather put their queue in the rack once Ronaldo had knocked in their fourth. Nevertheless, hundreds of millions of Chinese are watching the World Cup. Perhaps even more than might have been if they were allowed outside. This means that, despite the efforts of Chinese broadcasters to censor some crowd shots, hundreds of millions of Chinese have been watching the world. The maskless, mingling, moved-on world. Added to all of which, China is presently experiencing its worst surge of COVID-19 cases since the virus first emerged from Wuhan. It is, all things considered, not as easy as it once was for the Chinese Communist Party to make the case that it is right and everyone else is wrong. The question is, now what? As a general rule, public protests against authoritarian regimes can go one of three ways. One, they can fizzle, usually when the powers that be are sensible enough of their own long-term interests to stand back and permit an amount of steam to blow off. Two, they can be crushed, and the CCP infamously demonstrated its willingness to do that in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Three, they can acquire an irresistible momentum with astonishing consequences. We are approaching the twelfth anniversary of the self-immolation of a small-town Tunisian fruit seller named Mohamed Bouazizi. He just wanted local council officials to stop picking on him, and ended up redrawing the Middle East. But it is always prudent to apply an amount of perspective to public protest, however unusual or spectacular. Even if, and to be clear, this is a number plucked from thin air, not an estimate of the present protests, one million Chinese had taken to the streets, it would still mean that 1.4 billion Chinese had not. Such is the difficulty with silent majorities for governments and their opponents. It's quite hard to know what they're thinking. And、uh, yes, there are people. Are afraid because I do see that、um, there are videos of policemen crushing people, and I know what happened next. As of this recording, protests are reported to be continuing in several cities, and there have been a few hesitant hints from on high of a relaxing of some restrictions. Or, as outlined in the witheringly bland prose of official Chinese media, authorities are ramping up measures to rectify a one-size-fits-all approach, prevent excessive policy steps, and avoid arbitrarily enlarging the quarantine scope or loosening the control measures without careful analysis. This, however, could cause authorities still further problems by way of accelerating the current outbreak. China's vaccination rates are relatively low, especially among vulnerable elderly people, and China's vaccine, Sinovac, is less effective than those prevailing elsewhere. And the last thing authoritarian governments ever wish to be dealt in such circumstances is a wild card. Earlier this week, former President Jiang Zemin died. That in itself is not surprising. He was 96, but his passing will need to be commemorated, and his legacy will be discussed.
that of a relative reformist who favoured a moderately more enterprising and outgoing China and who rose to power just after a previous generation of leadership had driven tanks over China's impatient youth. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And now, for the urbanists, we profile Bozeman, Montana, which is featured in Monaco's annual Small Cities Index. Its mayor, Cindy Andrews, tells us about how the city's proximity to the great outdoors enriches its urban life. One of the great things about a growing community is that it does open up some opportunities, especially around diversity. And so you begin to see people with new and interesting ideas. You begin to see new culture come into your community. And you begin to see this community becoming more of a, a bit more of a melting pot, which you know creates a lot of opportunity, brings new ideas. And it also, for us, we have really been working on this inclusion and diversity, and it helps us to lift that up and really work on making everyone feel welcome here, and no matter what their race or identity or their life circumstance. And that's something that's really exciting and an opportunity that we see and are really grasping onto. And we are very focused on infill and density. And part of that is because of the beautiful area that we live in. We are also now doing a sensitive land study with many partners from around the region to think about the wildlife habitat that lives within our region. And so that is another reason why we are really, why we have been and continue to think about as we grow, how do we do infill and density, but how do we do that in a way that really is complementary to the community that is here? What are the characteristics that we want to see in that? A lot of um, mixed use where you have housing and retail, especially in a community like Bozeman where our core is already so developed. And so um, when we do infill in that area, what is it that we really need? And then as we think about as we grow, what do we need? Not everything can happen in your downtown. So how do you have little commercial nodes where people are able to do what they need to do every day? Being sensitive to our climate plan, which so we're not driving long distances, but actually developing walkable neighborhoods where people feel like they can get to know each other and be a part of that community as well as the bigger community. So I think we're, I like to think we are really progressive in that area in terms of how we're looking to develop our community. Our tools for developing our community in a way that we need, which is more affordable housing, and that's not something new. I mean, a lot of places around the country are struggling with this as well, but our tools are really limited. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to do the best we can around design and thinking about how do we do that infill as best we can? How do we create that density that gives us more multifamily units and make it so that developers want to do it? So that involves incentivizing them to make these kinds of changes. And that's not easy. We're continuing to look at our codes and our um, all of those barriers to entry, especially around housing, but I think in general to make it so that it's easy for people to be able to come here and develop and build and start new businesses, but at the same time asking them to do it responsibly and to help us understand the impact that they have when they do that to the community. You know what I mean? So you're coming, you're building more houses, so... You know, it's great to have more people. It's exciting to have them come. But at the same time, are you building affordable units so that people can actually, you know, live in the people that maybe live here can move up so the single family can move up or the new couple can move up to a bigger home? Are you doing your part to help us create an affordable community? And that creates a more diverse community. And that's what we're really focused on. 
And in terms of the the city's economy, Mm -hmm. maybe you could describe for us the sort of main pillars of that. Bozeman in particular, I think, has been built on a tourism economy because we're so close to Yellowstone National Park. And that still is the case. We have a lot of tourists that come through here every year. But we have a university that is just tremendous and they have a huge research department so the photonics and bioscience are something that's really taking off in our community and that is where we continue to focus some of our efforts in economic development they're clean businesses so to speak and some of the companies that are here are known you know nationally so having a partnership with the university is really important and is really helping us to think about things in addition to tourism we will always have a tourism economy here because of our proximity to Yellowstone National Park but I think that research component of the university is also helping us to think about economic development maybe in a different way. Well, I was speaking to the publisher of the newspaper yesterday, The Chronicle, oh, okay. and uh, the really eye-catching yellow buses were sort of uh-huh. passing by. And I wondered, you know, how big a part does sort of public transport? I've heard that lots of people appear to bike, especially mm-hmm. in a commuting context in the city itself. What's the kind of strategy there and why, say, having a good public transport network is important, do you think? For well, um, as we continue to grow, being a more multimodal community, again, helps with that diversity. Not everybody drives a car, nor does everybody want to drive a car. We have a transfer system. It's called Streamline. It's primarily federally funded, or the money came from the federal government, so it's you don't pay to ride it. Um, so it's free, and it's limited in where it can go just because of the amount of money that it's able to that we're able to provide and, and HRDC, the Human Research Development Council, can put in to expand those routes, but we continue to work on doing that, as well as expanding our bike lanes and trying to watch and really grow the areas where people can bike. We have, a, as I mentioned earlier, we have a climate plan, and we're really focused on trying to get rid of our carbon emissions and just like everybody else, right? And so some of that is really driving this idea of becoming a more multimodal community and trying to get folks to walk and ride bikes and take buses as opposed to driving in their cars. That said, we live in Montana. Things are really far apart here and we're never, uh, well, I shouldn't say never, but it'll be a while before we're maybe not ever using cars. It's a changing of a habit that's really hard. And, you know, myself, I mean, it's, I drive a lot of places. I try to be more conscious about when I'm doing that. But because of the diversity, our state is so large for us to go to meetings or one place to another, we need a car. And I think that mentality just kind of carries over into the community as well. But we are really focused on trying to become a more multimodal community and it's really helpful again the university students lots of students lots of bicycles lots of scooters so and thinking in our planning and development how to do more you know when we think about parking uh, right now we're having lots of conversation about parking and how much do we need and who should pay for it and where should it be and you know as you think forward how much parking do we need how much You know, do we need to do more ride sharing? Will there be more electric cars? Lots of questions around transportation, but certainly something we're trying to address head on and figure out some solutions to. You are listening to The Curator. At the end of last year, Jacqueline Tsang became the editor-in-chief of Tatler Hong Kong, one of the region's most iconic glossy magazines. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant caught up with Jacqueline one year into the job to see how it's going. 
So as Editor-in-Chief and Editorial Director, my purview is within Tatler Hong Kong. So I'm looking at print content, online content, social media, and also commercial initiatives as well. So what other people might call branded content. So anything that can be labeled content is under me, which makes my job a really, really fun one. And there's also a, a lot of, I think... Um, I'm working quite closely, actually, with the commercial teams and the sales teams, which is something that I think might not always be the case in other publication companies. Usually there's a very church and state approach, you know, between editorial and sales, like some editorial directors want to keep that line very, very clear. And I think that when I came in, it was because I wanted to keep the boundaries quite clear, but also I know that I personally have quite a high comfort level when it comes to working with commercial and sales, because I do think that we can have an understanding and we can support each other. And as long as we do so with integrity, I think that's all that matters. How would you define Tatler Hong Kong to someone who's not from Hong Kong? Because I know, for example, people in England might have a very specific view of what Tatler is that isn't actually your own publication. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So uh, there there has been a lot of confusion over the years, I think, because when people are in London, they know about the Tatler there. And it's definitely a very different thing from uh, Tatler Asia. So people who actually grew up here might think of Tatler as a Tatler they grew up with, because that Tatler was very, very focused on society. It was very focused on maybe wealthy and powerful families in Hong Kong. When I grew up with it, that was how I knew Tatler. So when I I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I always knew Tatler as the society magazine, anyone who was anyone in Hong Kong would be in that magazine. I actually think that at one point, my mom was in the magazine, and I was in there with her. It was the Oh God, it was a May 2000 issue. And it was uh, because it was May, they wanted to do a Mother's Day special. So they had kind of mothers and their daughters or mothers and the kids special that way. And then, so my mom and I were in that one. I was a a terrible bratty teenager. It was really funny. So yeah, several years later, 20 or so years later, here I am (laughs) back at the magazine, but this time working on it. And it's definitely changed since. So the magazine went through a rebranding in March, 2020. So this was when the CEO, Michel Lamounier, he made the decision, worked with the team to really change the direction of Tatler. So whereas before it was very much about society, about powerful and privileged families, he wanted to make sure that we actually looked at people who were making an impact, people who were doing things with a purpose, with meaning, who were actually making a difference. So when we look at people to interview now, when we're looking at potential cover stars, when we're looking at potential feature angles, we're no longer looking at maybe their family backgrounds or maybe who their parents were, who their grandparents are, but we're looking at what they're doing. So we're looking at the ideas that they have. Are they innovative? Are they making an impact? Do they have purpose? You know, are they actually doing something that's different from the status quo? So this happened... It feels like a long time ago, but it's actually only just two years ago. But I think that it's it's made such a difference. And I've already seen the talent that it's attracted. So the people working on Tatler now are the people who care deeply about these issues. Actually, a lot of them are from my old company. So it's almost like seeing half my old office here at Tatler because it's people that I respect and admire greatly. And now they're here working with me again. And I'm really happy about that. Could you maybe giving the giving an example of the most recent issue, some of the stories and people we might find in it. Yeah, I think to that point, I would say look at the August issue because that was easily one of my favorite issues this year because that is our diversity and inclusion issue. So that was when we looked at, for our cover story, we looked at queer families 
in Hong Kong, and we looked at primarily gay families in Hong Kong and what kind of family rights they had. So if a gay couple wanted to adopt a child, if they wanted to have their own child, what rights do they have and what rights don't they have? You know, and uh, we we kind of sat there at a meeting room and we thought of this idea. We wanted to look into it and we we bit off a bit more than we could chew. We didn't realize what a big issue it was. So we spoke to lawyers, we spoke to couples, we spoke to families who some of them were, were fine with being named and some of them were actually a bit worried. They didn't want to get in trouble because I think the lines are so blurry and I think the legalities can be a bit murky so that they just wanted to err on the safe side. And it was just fascinating getting into this story and our writer... Sabrina Lowe, she, she spent weeks and weeks and weeks researching the story, writing and rewriting drafts because it's so tricky to get right. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to express something the wrong way. So that was easily one of my um, favorite stories this year. And I think it really goes towards what I was saying before about the stories that matter, the stories that have meaning and uh, not just about maybe a more privileged life, which is what we used to focus on here at Teller. That's super interesting. I'm wondering, like, since you've come on as, as editor-in-chief, how have you balanced kind of wanting to inject so much of this new narrative into the magazine while at the same time maybe keeping alive some of that iconic glamour that people really associate with the brand? I think with how we cover luxury, that pretty much takes care of itself in its own way. I mean, we have Cherry Moy as our fashion director, and that girl is amazing. She is a Tyler ambassador. She's just come back from Paris Fashion Week, and she's she's been snapped by paparazzi. She's been, you know, all over Getty Images even, and she looks incredible. But I think one of the most amazing things is she is so open. She's a lovely person to work with, and she is so genuinely interested in fashion. And I think when you have people like that working on your fashion content, watch content, jewelry content, you're immediately going to get an incredible kind of view on luxury that you can't get anywhere else. We don't want to just rewrite press releases, for example, about, you know, oh, the latest drop, the latest collection. We can cover those, but we want to cover it in a more meaningful way. So we don't want to be a content farm, for example. We want to really make use of the incredible talent we have in the company. We have these experienced editors. We have these incredible directors. And we really want to have, help them get their voices across. So you're sitting in a very interesting location right now that I think really encapsulates <laughs> kind of the unique um, mm-hmm. status of Tatler in Hong Kong. Can you tell us a bit about that? I am in Tatler House. Tatler House is a surface apartment, essentially. It's a Pacific place across from Upper House. And... I didn't realize how lucky I was. And I think I, I took it for granted because uh, it is a wonderful location to, to be in. So it's it's a place that we use for small events sometimes, for client meetings sometimes. It is fully decorated with luxury home accessories. It's extremely beautiful from a design standpoint. It's very comfortable. And it's, it's definitely a lovely place to be in, in between meetings, for example. Sometimes I'll come here and uh, work from the dining room, the living room, if I have that awkward 45 minutes in between events or meetings. And it's definitely, I think it's, it's, it's so on brand <laughs> to, to use a, a common term. It's definitely very, very Tatler in the sense that we do love this side of it. We do love the luxury aspect of it. And we do want, when we meet people, when we meet clients or when we meet interviewees, to be able to bring them here and for them to see that, you know, look, we have a luxury lifestyle, but we do want to talk about things that matter. And the two don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. It can be, you know, we can absolutely tackle both at the same time. And it's very exciting times for the Global Countdown. We have a special World Cup edition. Uh, This is the latest episode where I looked at the top 
songs in the groups G and H, the same groups of the World Cup. We have quite a lot to do today, but shall we first again quickly recap what we're doing today and which groups you are looking at today? A quick recap of the Global Countdown World Cup. I'm looking basically at the group uh, groups of the World Cup. I'm mimicking uh, the groups, but of course we're not talking about football here, Marcus, but about music. So I'm selecting one song from each group to go through the next uh, round, which is the semi-finals next week. Uh, and it's all about music, and let's see who is going to win. Today we look at groups G and H. Exactly, and from Group G we start with Switzerland. What do we have over here? Well, it's a country that Monaco covers very well, but I wonder if we did uh, many reports on the Zurich rap underground scene. Probably not, but maybe maybe we should. Uh, so the top uh, song here in Switzerland is by their two rappers from the city, El Loco and Edrini. The song's called Will No Me. Let's have a listen and then I'll tell you about the lyrics. <laughs> Your hips to the left, hips to the right, right. Lips with the vibes, name us beer or the zwei. Es ist Viertel vor zwei. Viertel vor zwei. Sie steht in Viertel auf Eis. Viertel auf Eis. Woman auf der Hintertür, in der Party. Nimm a flash of mir, go with your ears. I would imagine this song works for you considering a Brazilian gene. The song is about heaps going to the left and then heaps going to the right. Exactly. And 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 the German bit is uh, Zurich is the town. Bounce. Move from the lounge. So I think they're having quite some fun uh, in the Zurich nightlife, Marcus. Like we, like we did as well when we go to Zurich sometimes. Mm, from Switzerland to Cameroon next, by the way. Cameroon. Cameroon is very joyful. I love this track. And in fact, it is a World Cup track because the, the Camer- Cameroonian uh, football team is even mentioned uh, in this track. Uh, I think it's a very positive track. I like it. It's by Chris M with Chacun Saint Chance. <laughs> Very nice. I liked it. I like it as well. Everyone has their chance. That's the song translated. And I think it's a, song, it's a positive song to release your uh, inner groove, if mm. I may say, as well. Fernando, I'm wondering, what kind of a journalistic approach are you taking to the World Cup countdown, considering that the next act is going to be from somewhere where you are from, from Brazil. Are we going to be unbiased? I'm I'm looking at you in your eyes, Marcus. I'm telling for this, I'm completely unbiased. Honestly, it's it's not even my music taste. I just I just count a lot of factors. The mm-hmm. importance, the relevance of the music, the originality, the fun as well. Perhaps the emotional, perhaps the politics of it. There's so many different aspects. Uh, but anyway, it's, it is my country indeed that we're looking now, Brazil. And I have to say, I was a bit surprised with this track. It's a, it's a little bit naughty. Uh, it's by the singer Gustavo Mioto and Mari Fernandes. The song is called Eu Gosto Assim, which means I like it like this. Mm-hmm. And I'll translate to you after. Let's have a listen. A gente se pega sem se apega. A gente usa a cama só pra se usar sem ama. Mas eu gosto assim. Ele não me ama, mas eu gosto assim. A gente se pega sem se apega. A gente usa a cama só pra se usar. So, Fernando, why is this song naughty? It's naughty, but quite 
progressive in many ways. It's a song about lust, not love. They say some people don't want love. They just want to enjoy the heat under the duvet. I mean, we're, but, we're not reinforcing the, the Brazilian stereotypes no, 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 over here, but, are we? But it's good that, you know, they're both a man and a woman singing there about the song and it's becoming such a massive hit. I mean, I, I know Brazil are not very big into Christmas tracks or bigger into carnival tracks. Mm-hmm. That felt to me, that feels to me more of a kind of a carnival country track uh, in a way. Okay, that was Brazil. And then we have one more uh, a country left from Krub G. And this one is from Serbia, this song. Yeah, I did mention on the menu clip that there will be a lot of heartbreaking songs. This is one of them. They say, I couldn't admit you were the one. Uh, I would let every wound uh, open like the sky. It's very dramatic. Uh, let's have a listen from Serbia. Hany and Breskvika with uh, Sava i Tunav. I like this song, but Fernando, can you remind me, what was its name? How dare you make fun of my Serbian, Marcus? It's Sava It. Enough, you know. I'm really sorry for all, the, all, all our Serbian listeners. It's a rem- it was a good track, actually. I liked it. It's a good track, strong group, I have to say. But I'll tell you the winner at the end. I think we have Group H before Marcus, and I think we have to go quick because this global countdown is a big bonanza. That's all I can say. Portugal is the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice track. It's by Bárbara Bandeira. She's very famous in Portugal with Ivandro. They're both one of the top Portuguese artists of the year, I have to say. It's another heartbreaking track. It's, it's, let's have a listen. It's Como Tu, Like You. I'm sorry, after hearing a few songs like this, I have to say, it's a bit meh. It's a bit, well, you know, but they, they are very professional artists. But yeah, I kind of agree with you as well, Marcus, but, you know, I can't review too much. Who knows if Portugal will go through or not. Something a bit more exciting, perhaps, from Ghana. And this artist, he is actually one of the most successful Afri- African musicians of all time. He's only 37 years old, but he's already a veteran uh, in the Ghanaian music scene. His name is Sakodi, and he plays, which it's quite interesting. So it's a meeting of different generations. Uh, this song is featuring Black Sheriff, another Ghanaian musician who's only 20. Uh, so it's kind of old and new. I love that. The song's called Countryside. Let's have a listen. No more, they go see me for countryside. If you die, they go see me, oh, they go follow my damn go for countryside. If you die, they go see me, oh, they go follow my damn go for countryside. Nice. It's fun, very uh, melodic, and another great track uh, by Sarkodi, a veteran of the Ghanaian music scene. I say veteran, he's only 37, he's not that old. <laughs> I have to be very careful here. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we spoke to uh, Lucinda Elliott a moment ago. She was joining us from Uruguay, and I'm wondering how she feels about the track we're hearing next. I wonder as well. I know, I know Lucinda would be proud that Uruguay is here, but I wonder, let's see if they will be able to go to the next round. It, it's a very gentle ballad. There's some touches of country, some regional rhythms from 
Latin America. It's by a balladeer. His name is Matias Valdes with Catherine Evenes. The song is called Quiero un Si. I want a yes. All I can say, Marcus, it's not happy, actually. They talk about how love doesn't always have a happy ending. So it is a bit of a sad countdown. There's a lot of heartbreaking uh, tracks here. Well, let's hope the South Koreans are a bit more update because that's the last remaining track we have for this countdown. Well... It's South Korea. It's always a special one. It's such an interesting music market and very relevant. Uh, you know, uh, this is uh, this is a track that was uh, released in March. It took some time actually to top the charts, and the only reason it did that because the singer uh, was performing college campuses across the country, and so it's kind of a slow burner, uh, a very emotional uh, ballad uh, by the young singer-songwriter Yunha. The song's called Event. Horizon. Let's have a listen. Nice. South Korea, always interesting. Always interesting. It's time for the winners. I know, this is the most exciting bit of this segment. So who are going to go to the semifinals? It's not always easy, Marcus. From Group G, I chose, and I think you'll be happy with my choice, Cameroon, for all the joy uh, they gave us. It's a great track by Chris M. Chacun, Sechance. Well done. That's good news. Cameroon. And then from Group H. Group H Difficult, but again, I think they deserve, because of the relevance of their music to the world, it is going to be South Korea with Yungha Event Horizon. Excellent. And I think we both are quite pleased by Glad these to countries. Hear. Sorry about Brazil, by the way. Didn't Sorry about it. Brazil. It's a, it's a fun track. It's a fun track, but it didn't make it this time. Exactly. Fernando, thank you very much for joining us. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You were listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now a delicious moqueca recipe by Brazilian chef Rafael Cagalli from Da Terra and Elise. I can tell you it's very good. I'm Rafael Cagalli, chef at Da Terra and Elise in London. So we're going to talk a bit about the moqueca dish now. So it's one of the dishes that we have in Da Terra. So it's inspired by a classic dish from Bahia, northeast of Brazil. It's basically a fish stew, right? So uh, we started sweating off some onions, garlic, and some peppers. You could add like red peppers and green peppers. Uh, we made a paste as well with dry shrimps and some dente oil, which is an oil that comes from the fruit of the palm tree. So uh, it's pretty typical in the region. And it's a must on the on the recipe, right? Otherwise, you cannot call mukeka baiana. 
so we make this paste and then we add the apple with the onions and, and peppers, add tomatoes in there, uh, just roast it off a little bit. Uh, we also uh, add some uh, coconut cream and uh, let it cook right for a little while. Uh, you can add uh, like also you know a bisque or uh, some shellfish uh, you know shells in there and the heads of prawns are delicious as well or langoustines if you have then you know add some fish stock as well so you create your base for your stew and then you can add the fish towards the end right so otherwise it doesn't overcook too much and and that's it and then you can add some fresh uh, coriander which I, I love it in the end it's served on, on the side with rice plain rice if you like it uh, but traditionally in Brazil as well we have uh, farofa right which is uh, the toasted uh, flour and we have many types of it the ones we usually in the restaurant is uh, manioc but you have uh, you can toast it in the pan uh, or cassava flour and that goes uh, absolutely well with these dishes And for Toast Stories this week, Jessica Bridger tells us the story of a beloved and iconic feature of the Boston skyline. Feeling like you have a personal relationship with a skyscraper seems ridiculous at first pass. Yet the best buildings become personal. They are beloved by many individually, iconic and symbolic, but also utterly subjective. For me... The knife-edge John Hancock Tower in Boston, Massachusetts has this quality and has had it ever since I can remember. I grew up in Boston, and the Hancock is one of the city's landmarks, even though a recent change in ownership and tenants means that the building is now technically called 200 Clarendon. It is, now, always and forever, the Hancock. The slim blue glass building is 241 meters tall, rising from Copley Square in Boston's Back Bay. The building's glass facade gives it a moody identity, mirroring the city's oceanside weather. It can be occluded in fog or resplendent in full sun. You can see snowstorms blow in before they hit, walls of white snow squalls sweeping across the Charles River and into the heart of the city first reflected by, and then enveloping the tower in white. The John Hancock Tower is a relic of Boston's financial services boom in the 1960s and 1970s, as John Hancock and Prudential, both majority life insurance companies at the time, duked it out in the East Coast and beyond, and forever changed the Boston skyline in the process. Prudential's Boston Tower came first in 1964, It is still known as The Prue and is as ugly as a Boston sports bar on days when the Red Sox baseball team loses. It is clad in dark gray aluminum in its glass facade, which now seems retro. But the Hancock is, and always will be, more modern. Completed in 1976, the Hancock was not universally beloved from the start, but nearly 50 years later it has become a point of pride in Boston. Now, I could tell you a story about Boston disliking its modern icon at first, of groundbreaking engineering beset and nearly bested by falling glass panels, plywood replacements, and structural revisions. But that's not the point of this tall story. Construction faults can be fixed. The beautiful truth of pure form cannot be bested, even by physics. 
This tall story is about how urban adoration can build up layer by layer, year by year, like sediment as a city grows to love its singular structures, built by the bold and appreciated, eventually, by everyone each in their own way. Buildings like the Empire State in New York City, the Shard in London, or the Hancock in Boston become part of our personal mythologies. My dad worked for, and later with, John Hancock Life Insurance for most of his life. Some of my earliest memories are of looking up at the building, suitably impressed and proud. The Hancock was the beginning of my, and many Bostonians, love affairs with architecture and urbanism. My mom, ever clever at making things, even made me a Halloween costume of the Hancock out of a large cardboard box and foil paper. My older brother was the prue. I can tell you that we were not the first, nor last, Boston kids to collect candy dressed as the local urban icons. The Hancock Building is featured in guidebooks, on postcards, establishing shots in movies, just as Boston as our accents, clam chowder, or Harvard. The Hancock was designed by the firm of Pritzker Prize winner I.M. Pei, and the project architect was Harry Cobb, a legend in Boston. The building is cleverly planar, its slick surfaces somehow blending into the city and concealing an astounding 260,000 square meters of space spread over 60 stories. If you really look at the building in context, you begin to realize that it is actually huge. But somehow, it lets the 19th century, small-scale urban fabric of Boston's Back Bay read clearly. It never upstages its neighbors, including the outstanding brown-hued, ornate complexity of Trinity Church and the perfect pale stone of the Boston Public Library. The Hancock Building instead just is a sliver of the city and landscape reflected on itself. There's something to be learned from Cobb's Hancock design, something for the many global cities now grappling with how to add density in the form of skyscrapers, without destroying their core identities and urban fabric. Truly great buildings add to cities without subtracting, make them more fully themselves, just as they do the exact same thing to the city's inhabitants, cementing their relationship to their urban surrounds. And we stay in the United States. Art Basel Miami Beach, the Florida outpost of the world's biggest art fair, opened to the public this week. Our U.S. editor, Chris Lord, has been there for a sneak peek and has been speaking to the curator, Magali Ariola, who puts together the Meridians section of the fair. So this is the third edition of Meridians uh, so far. The idea is to create a platform you know, like for works that cannot be shown in the context of um, art fair, you know, like in the like normal booth, because they're either too large or either there are performances, as you mentioned before, or installations. So the idea behind the sector is to rethink, you know, like the 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 concept of scale, not only in terms of size, but like also, you know, like in terms of expansion. So An ambition with the piece, if, if you like. Exactly. That's exactly. really interesting. Now, I should say, just to our right, is a, is a really interesting piece, which is essentially a bunch of disembodied torsos with speedos on them. Just talk me through what's happening in this piece here. 
So that's a piece by Jonathan Andrade, a Brazilian artist who represented Brazil at the Venice Biennial this year. And so that's a collection of uh, bathing suits that he has been putting together in the last 10 years. And those are bathing suits that he found. The piece is called Lost and Found. And so he found them in different like swimming clubs in Recife, which is his natal uh, city. And then he commissioned different artisans to, you know, like conceive like these uh, body fragments, which are mainly hips. And that was a way for him to kind of establish like a quite like a rather improbable conversation between, you know, like all these artisans that normally do like either religious icons or everyday objects, you know, like with clay. And this time they're just like, you know, being confronted to like this representation of masculinity. So it's also like a way of, you know, like trying again to establish a dialogue between uh, these artisans and whatever, you know, like masculinity means for them, how it's represented and how it is perceived. It's really interesting because he found them over a course of 10 years, right? I mean, they're essentially just discarded speedos that he found on the beach in Recife. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, it's great. And so then he works with people who would normally make Christ sculptures, crucifixes and so on to do this sort of, as you say, tribute to masculinity. Really interesting. What strikes you, you, you've got a very good bird's eye view here of what's being brought to this fair because, you know, so many of these pieces here, as I say, the, the galleries are right through there. So you've got a good sense of what's driving some of the conversation here. What strikes me when I look around is there's a lot of handmade things here. There's a lot of paint, sculpture, clay, uh, really materials that are, you know, analog, not digital, back to a certain, certain sense of tangibility. Do you feel that as well? I definitely think so. So there are, you know, like we just uh, spoke about these pieces which are made out of clay, but there is also like a kind of comeback, you know, like to, tra- to tradition and traditional, like, mediums. There's a piece by uh, Sara Flores, who is a Peruvian artist, who works with, uh, like, like cotton, handmade cotton, you know, like, from her original uh, Peru and the way like this fabric is made is also a way of you know like creating some sort of sustainability within her you know like uh, within her like native uh, town so she is an artist that com- comes from the Shinibo Conibo um, community in Peru and that could be put in relationship also with Jose Bedia's work who is from Cuba and he's probably one of the main uh, representatives of you know like late 20th century um, Latin American art and definitely one of the main representatives of uh, Cuban art and in his case the, the work is called uh, Manun Finda and it's uh, he, Jose Bedia is uh, a priest of Palomonte which is um, like an African religion that is practiced in, in Cuba and all of that he does is very much related to you know like this kind of spirituality which is achieved through you know like uh, yeah like a relationship with nature so we're going back to to this like very you know like gestural painting that also embraces uh, like natural elements animals animal skins so yeah, there's a crocodile skin in there i think isn't there exactly yeah i'm curious do you think that there is a sort of re- reaction here to if you like in recent years especially here in miami that prevalence of NFTs, digital art, screens became so much a big part of art dealing here in Miami. Do you think there's a bit of a reaction to that going on here? 
I'm not sure it's a reaction to that. It's really a reaction to the pandemic, you know, like just going back to the roots and going back to the local somehow. We have another piece in the sector by Simon Denny, who is from New Zealand, and he's one of those artists that is actually, you know, like uh, he's working with NFTs, but it's um, it's not like uh, uh, this is a piece that embraces the NFT, but it's rather a piece that is quite critical of that whole economy and specifically, you know, like the economy of mining and extraction, which is, again, you know, like a kind of, a, you know, like it's, it's like a very aggressive kind of economy for the planet, for planet Earth. Miami Beach and Art Basel Miami Beach for so long was regarded as a gateway, if you like, to Latin America and to, to, to the scene that's happening down there across the continent. I wonder, just looking back to where you are in uh, Museo Tomeo in, in Mexico City, so much interest around Mexico at the moment. Just talk us through what's happening there art-wise market-wise as well, and whether we might see a fair of similar ambitions heading down south of the border? Well, it's indeed like a very, you know, like, I would say hype destination at this point, uh, and, and we definitely have a very buoyant scene. You know, we have, like, many institutions, as you said, uh, Musotama is one of them, but we have, I think it's probably one of the cities with, most in the, with more institutions in the world, like, different sizes, of course, and we have, like, a very, you know, like, active gallery scene too with many many like younger galleries that are just like exploding right now and many young artists also coming up so I think it's it's really like a very good moment for the scene we do have an art fair uh, Sonamaco during February which has been there I would say almost for like 20 years now and it's been like a really you know like a very big magnet for like international galleries too so it's not only like Mexican galleries but international galleries that meet during February. And finally, the curator, it's time for What We Learned, where Andrew Mueller muses about the biggest stories of the week. We learned this week that whatever other reservations one may reasonably entertain about the 2022 World Cup, it absolutely was not going to let us down on the flag mishap. The flag mishap is a highlight of any World Cup or indeed any international sporting tournament. It occurs when someone somewhere runs up the wrong competitor's flag at a significant moment, occasioning indignant communiques, summonings of ambassadors, furious headlines and other such hilarity. Classics of the genre include South Korea's flag instead of North Korea's before a women's football match at the 2012 Olympics in London. Niger's flag instead of Nigeria's at the opening ceremony of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Australia's and New Zealand's the wrong way around at the medal ceremony for the women's canoe slalom at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Oh no. And one for the real flag mishap heads. A Chinese flag with the stars slightly off kilter. Also at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Actually, we learn, reflecting on the above, that Brazil seems prone to particular lackadaisy on this front. 
get it together, Brazil. Anyway, we learned that the contribution of Qatar 2022 to this canon of gaiety would be associated with the crucial Group B game involving the United States and Iran, two countries which one might say have something of a history if one was swinging for some sort of award for understatement. <coughs> We learned that in social media postings foreshadowing the match between the great Satan and the Axis of Evil, whoever handles these things for the United States Soccer Federation had used images of Iran's flag without the stylized tulip motif added after the 1979 revolution, which unloaded the Shah and established the Islamic Republic. <laughs> We learned of the depth of the Ayatollah's unamusement from the following statement by Iran's state news agency, as will be read with due solemnity by Monocle24's clerical dudgeon desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In an unprofessional act, the Instagram page of the US Football Federation removed the symbol from the Iranian flag. The Iran Football Federation sent an email to FIFA to demand it issue a serious warning. Not just any old warning. A serious warning. We learned by way of explanation from the US soccer authorities that they'd plucked the logo from the flag as an arguably somewhat chaotic gesture of support for those Iranian women still protesting in large numbers at considerable risk for the right to decide for themselves whether or not they feel like wearing a scarf. But we learned that they had not first informed the United States actual manager Greg Berhalter, who rather disappointingly for those of us who enjoy this sort of thing and were looking forward to Iran retaliating by taking the stars or the stripes off the stars and stripes or whatever apologized sort of we had no idea about what u.s soccer put out the staff the players had no idea we learned however that this saga had not ceased delighting us because after this mckinney saw the run of tests and there he is and Pulisic's in there The United States make their move in Group B. There was this. Which, we learned, was just one of a plethora of online clips claiming to record Iranians in Iran celebrating the defeat of Iran's football team by the United Actual States, an occurrence which defies simile, being by any measure weirder than Barcelona fans rejoicing in a belting by Real Madrid, Celtic fans enraptured at a loss of the old firm derby at home to Rangers, or indeed North Korea being absolutely delighted at seeing South Korea's flag hoisted on their pole. Do you see how meticulously stitched together these monologues are? Or perhaps we should say how meticulously stitched together these monologues usually are, as we've had our best people on it all morning and cannot find a seamless segue from football flags, protests, etc. to French bread. So probably what we're going to need here is that agonising gear change sound effect fading into that silly French accordion music we seem to end up using fairly frequently. Before we learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. 
We learned that alongside such worthy endeavours as, and these are actual examples, Belgian horseback shrimp fishing, Belarusian tree-born beekeeping, Spanish human castle building, Vanuatuan sand drawing, Bosnian lawn mowing, Mongolian camel coaxing et al., UNESCO has now ennobled the French baguette. We learned that President Emmanuel Macron was among those French delighted by this recognition of their unwieldy long loafs, brandishing one gloatingly during his current visit to Washington. Dans ces quelques centimètres de savoir-faire passés de main en main, il y a, il y a exactement l'esprit du savoir-faire français. And we learned that President Macron was not done there, as he tweeted exultantly as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's Gallic Vindication Desk Chief, Laura Kramer, whose Romanian accent is the closest thing we have in the building today. Get past it. We had been fighting for years with bakers and the world of gastronomy for its recognition. The baguette is now UNESCO Intangible Heritage. <coughs> so we learned that for France, this brings an end to decades of pain. Pain being French for bread, right? <laughs> Please yourselves. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>